To err is human. To forgive is divine. Do you know who said that? Jesus. Uh, I don't think he did. I'm pretty sure he did. Um, actually, it's Pope. The Pope? But not the Pope. Alexander Pope. He was an English poet. You know who my favorite Pope was? Pope Hilarius. Ha! Yes. Served, I believe, uh, 461 to 468. He was... He was very funny. Loved him. My favorite, easily. Hands down. There's no argument you could make. Look it up. It's in the log. Okay. Yeah. I'm right, you're wrong. One to nothing. Let's get this guy fired and bring somebody a little more competent, please, so we can do these. A little neater. A little cleaner. I'm kidding. I obviously have no authority here. I cannot fire you. <laughs> Pope Hilarius actually was a real pope, believe it or not. There you go. And it was not my sermon that set off the fire alarm. It was Rich's cigar, but uh, we'll leave that. No, apparently it was a cooking thing. Hey, welcome to Renaissance. And how about that time change, huh? No, I like the one in the fall better. Hey, it's great to see you guys. Glad you made it out. My name is Clay, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just really glad that you guys came here today. We are in, as Rich mentioned, uh, the last day of our series that we're calling Finding Peace in the Midst of Chaos. And today we're looking at the question, how do I find peace in the midst of hurt? How do I find peace when I have been hurt so badly that from a human perspective, it is like impossible to forgive. I've been betrayed by someone I trusted or whatever it may be. How do I find peace? How do I find forgiveness in the midst of that kind of hurt? And uh, for the last three weeks, Rich has been looking at the life of the Old Testament character, Joseph. And it's been a great uh, set of messages, a great series there. Joseph, interestingly, is he, there is more space devoted in the book of Genesis to Joseph than there is to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Noah or Adam and Eve. And it's really interesting because we don't normally think of Joseph so much but there's more space devoted to the, in the book of Genesis, devoted to Joseph's life. And that's part of the reason why we're looking at it, because God worked so powerfully in Joseph and through Joseph, and we've been learning a lot of lessons uh, from his life. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is such great literature, and the life of Joseph is kind of uh, overviewed or symbolized by the clothing that Joseph is wearing at various stages during his life. When he's well-clothed, things are going great in his life. And when his clothing is, is problematic, we'll talk about that just in a minute, it parallels the negative situation, the negative circumstances in his life. So, for example, we have flown in for us from the Egyptian archives uh, Joseph's coat of many colors, Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. Now, it wasn't as colorful, but it was an ornate robe that uh, Joseph wore as a sign of his father's favor, and that's talked about in Genesis chapter 37. Now, Israel, which was another name for uh, Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made the ornate robe for him as a sign of his favor. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them. Why? Well, because dad shopped at Macy's for the brothers, 
but he went to Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom's or even had a custom-made coat for Joseph and showed his favor to Joseph. So Joseph has this ornate robe, which is symbolic of the special place that he has as the favored son in the family. But it's also symbolic of his brother's jealousy of him and their hatred for him. And so what they ended up doing was, take a look here a couple of verses later in Genesis 37, 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. So here's Joseph's robe, and if you were a little closer, you'd be able to see the blood that's been splattered all over this and the way it's kind of torn up and, and, and distressed. And so what they did is they took this robe, they covered it in animal blood, they ripped it up a bit, and they brought it back to dad, and they said, see, is this your son's robe? They don't say, is this your, my, our brother's robe? Is this your son's robe? And Jacob, Israel, looks at the robe, and he says, my son has been eaten by wild beasts, and he's dead. And he thinks that his son is dead. So the robe, when it's in good shape, symbolic of Joseph's high position. The robe, when it's all torn up and covered in blood, symbolic of Joseph's loss of position. So he's now in the bottom of this cistern, which is basically this deep hole in the ground that was used for holding water. And so his brothers take him, they drag him out of the cistern, as Rich mentioned about three weeks ago, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. But while Joseph's a slave, he becomes the trusted servant of a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So he's a pretty high official in the nation of Egypt. And God had favor on Joseph, and Joseph rose to the position of a trusted household servant of this man named Potiphar. And while he was there, he probably wore a robe, something like this, a fairly nondescript plain kind of a robe, but it was a whole lot better than what, what he would have been wearing if he had been in prison. And so he wears this robe as he's serving in Potiphar's house, but then look what happens uh, just shortly after this. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. And she, this is Potiphar's wife, caught him by his cloak, by his robe, and said, come to bed with me but he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. So he's got this robe, kind of nondescript, symbolic of his somewhat nondescript position. It's, it's not bad for a slave, but he's still a slave. And what happens is Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him. She grabs his coat. She grabs his robe. He's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. He runs out of the house naked, leaving the robe in her hand. And the robe symbolizes then his loss of his robe, symbolizes his loss of position, because when Potiphar comes home, his wife is still holding this robe and says, your servant, that Hebrew servant that you brought in here has tried to accost me and he's tried to take advantage of me. And so Potiphar has Joseph thrown into jail. So he had the coat of many colors, everything's great. Coat's taken away from him, he's in the cistern, thrown into slavery in Egypt. He gets this robe, He's Potiphar's household servant, one of his chief servants there. Things are reasonably good for him in spite of his circumstances. Robes taken away parallels his loss of position. And that's where we left him at the end of last week. He's in jail and he's forgotten. See, he was in jail with 
a number of different officials from Pharaoh's household, and as Rich mentioned, one of them was Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. The cupbearer had an interesting kind of a position because he wasn't actually a bodyguard. He was more like a food taster. And you think about that, he got to eat some pretty good food in that, you know, and have some pretty good wine. But there was always a little bit of job insecurity in that situation because the reason that he was the cupbearer, the reason that he was the food taster was because if someone was going to try to poison Pharaoh, then the cupbearer would eat it, drink it first, and he would die so that Pharaoh wouldn't die. So on the one hand, he got some pretty good food. On the other hand, there was always a little bit of hazard to his job. So hopefully he had some uh, pretty good life insurance for his family there. Anyway, so he was in jail with Joseph, and uh, Joseph interpreted his dream, as Rich mentioned last week, and he was restored to his position as cupbearer. And Joseph, as, he's, as the guys leave in prison, Joseph says, hey, when you go back to Pharaoh's court, remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me and get me out of here because I've been unjustly accused of a crime that I never actually committed. But the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And we pick up the, two, the, the story two years later when Joseph had been a slave for 12, 13 years. So kind of his favorite movie during that time was obviously the uh, Academy Award winning 12 Years a Slave. So we pick up the story about, tw- uh, about two years later. Joseph is now pushing 30 years old. He is sold into slavery when he was 17. He's now about 30 years old. And uh, in the court area, Pharaoh has this really bizarre dream. <coughs> Excuse me. It's this dream about cows and ears of grain. And in Pharaoh's dream, he sees these really big fat cows and they're eaten by uh, seven scrawny cows, and then there's these seven ears of grain that are really, uh, you know, plump and fat and, and, and good-looking, and then these, these scrawny ears of grain, and they eat up those uh, seven fat ears of grain, and Pharaoh's like, what is this dream? And he's really disturbed by the whole thing, so he calls all of his officials together. He calls all his wise men and his magicians, and he says, can anybody interpret this dream for me? And they're like, we have no clue. This is, you know, what... Maybe your cupbearer put something in the wine or who knows what you've been, what you've been drinking there. He did, they don't know what's going on. And so the cupbearer says, um, uh, uh, Pharaoh, I, I don't really want to remind you of the fact that I was in prison for a period of time. But while I was in prison for a period of time, I met this guy named Joseph and he interpreted my dreams and they actually came true to be the way that he had interpreted them. So if you call for him, maybe he'll be able to interpret your dream for you. And so they went ahead and did that. And so verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So when he had shaved, he probably had one of these sort of kind of straight razors that you would use uh, and was given a new change of clothes. He, he came before Pharaoh. And, and you stop and you think about that and you realize from the Hebrew, from the Jewish perspective, and this is what, what, who Joseph is, facial hair is going to be viewed as a sign of honor, a good full beard. And that was, that was a sign of honor there. But to the Egyptians, it was like a sign of being just dirty and, and, and not well-groomed and that sort of thing. And so uh, they gave Joseph a razor and said, shave because you're going to go stand before Pharaoh. And they gave him a change of clothes because if he went up there in whatever rags or whatever he was wearing when he was in prison, Pharaoh would take one look at him, 
take one whiff of him, and he'd be back in prison, and that would be the end of it. So he's given this change of clothes, which parallels his coming out of prison and being able to stand before Pharaoh. <coughs> Excuse me. So then Pharaoh uh, explains the dream to Joseph, and he says to him, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. And Joseph said, I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer his, that he desires. Think about this for a second. This is 13 years after his brothers had betrayed him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. It's two years after he had been falsely accused of trying to accost his boss's wife and had been thrown into prison for that. And it was two years after he had been forgotten by a friend who said he was going to help him in this situation. And yet, Joseph didn't lose his faith in God. Joseph could have said, yeah, I can interpret your dream. I'll take credit for that. He said, no, I can't do it, but God can. Joseph realized he was not the center of his own story. God was the center of his story. And Joseph was just a character in God's story rather than God being a character in Joseph's story. So Pharaoh explains the dream to Joseph, and Joseph says to him, you know, the seven fat cows and the seven fat ears of grain, those are seven years of abundance. And during that seven-year time, you're going to have crops, you're going to have flourishing among your, your cattle and, and all this that is going to be greater than you have ever seen. But that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine are going to be so great that the seven years of abundance are going to pale by comparison, and the seven years of famine are going to swallow up those seven years of abundance. And if you don't appoint somebody, if you don't set somebody over, uh, over your, you know, sort of an agriculture secretary over your kingdom there, then the people are going to end up starving. And so what you need to do is during the seven years of abundance, you need to store up all the grain, all the food that you possibly can because you're going to need every bit of it during those seven years of famine in order for the people in your country to be able to survive. And Pharaoh says, where can we find somebody who is wise enough to administer all of this? And he turns to Joseph and he says, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he puts it on Joseph's finger. And the signet ring is going to have a stamp on it. And the idea of that, it's kind of like Pharaoh's signature. When Pharaoh made a decree, he would take his signet ring and he would pour some hot wax on whatever piece of paper it was and he would stamp it with his signet ring. And when people saw that, that was essentially Pharaoh's signature saying, I've made this decree and it comes you know, backed by the full faith and credit of the government of Egypt or, or, or whatever it is. And people have to obey that. And by handing that ring, that signet ring to Joseph, he's saying, you, Joseph, are going to act in my place. When you make a decree, it's as if I made that decree and everybody needs to obey what you said, what, what you tell them to do. And then Pharaoh dresses him in robes of fine linen. And he put a gold chain around his neck 
and he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. So he takes him and he gives him these royal robes and he has him ride in this chariot as his second in command. And you see the, the movement that has occurred in Joseph's life from the exalted position as the, the favored son to being in the cistern, to being a slave, to being raised up a bit and being a favored household servant, to being falsely accused and losing his, his, his robe at that point, to being given a change of clothes and the ability to shave. And now he's the second highest person in all of Egypt. And his clothing parallels all this. So if you want to remember the story of Joseph, just ask yourself, what was he wearing at the particular time? And you can see how God was working in his life uh, during that time. So during the seven years of abundance, Joseph worked to store up enough grain to take care of uh, and, and be prepared for the seven years of famine. And so we want to jump ahead here to verse 56. And it says, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses, sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout the whole land. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And so what Joseph ended up doing is he had the people come, they'd buy grain from him. And when their money ran out, he said, hey, you can sell your land and we'll let you use it and raise crops on it when it's, when it's able to, to raise crops again. So what he ended up doing was acquiring essentially all the money of all the people of Egypt and all the land of all the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh loved this because during the seven years of famine, his people were safe, but Pharaoh increased his wealth and Egypt in some sense flourished during this really challenging time of famine. And you'd expect the story to kind of end there. You expect it to stop and they lived happily ever after. Problem is, it's time for the Wickersham brothers, you know, from a Horton Hears a Who to show up. Joseph's brothers, who had been forgotten about, about, you know, 20 years before, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery by this time. And now they show up back on the scene. When Jacob, Joseph's father, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep standing around looking at each other? Go down to Egypt. I've heard that there's grain there. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, it had been 20 years, so they didn't recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them, dreams that Rich talked about uh, several weeks ago where they were gonna bow down to him. He remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. And I'll let you read the rest of the story because it's a pretty interesting story of intrigue. Joseph's kind of toying with them. Uh, they brought money to pay for the grain. And so Joseph gives them the grain, fills their sacks with grain, but he puts the money back in the sacks. And as they're going home, they realize that the money's there. And they're like, well, maybe God is after us. Maybe he's trying to punish us as a result of what we've done, what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. And they're feeling all this guilt. And they go home. And uh, they use up all the grain, and then dad says, hey, go back and get more. And they're kind of like, oh, I don't know if we can go back. 
So they end up going back, and they're going back and forth, and all this is going on. And finally, near the end of their second visit, they're eating dinner with Joseph. He's invited them to dine with them in his private dining room. And here's what happens. Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, before all of his servants, and he cries out and he says, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they're terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And notice what Joseph does. He reminds his brothers of what they've done. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. He doesn't minimize what they've done. He doesn't gloss over it. That's how he describes himself, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't worry. I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you. Why? Because God sent me here. You think you sent me here, but ultimately God sent me here in order to save many lives. He didn't minimize their offense, but he didn't hold it against them either. So some years later, their father dies, and Joseph's brothers begin to worry whether Joseph might have spared their lives, whether he might have treat, treated them well, whether he might have, quote-unquote, forgiven them simply for their father's sake because he didn't want to distress their father any further. And so when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Let's pause there for a second. Am I in the place of God? From one perspective, he absolutely is in the place of God. He's second in command of Egypt. He acts with Pharaoh's authority, and all he had to do was say to his servants, those guys, they're dead. And that would have been it. He wouldn't have had to go to Pharaoh. He wouldn't have had to go to the court. He wouldn't have had to do anything. He had the authority, essentially, to have them executed. So in some sense, he's in the place of God. But from his perspective, absolutely not. I'm not God. I'm not in God's place. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you. I'll provide for your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph knew that he was part of a much bigger story. He knew that he was not the focal point of the story. He knew that the story was so much bigger than he was. And that's what enabled him to be able to forgive his brothers. And, and the saving of many lives that he talks about, it began with Joseph. God preserved Joseph's life during that whole time in Egypt. And as, again, as you parallel his clothing, you see the sovereignty of God. You see the hand of God working to not only to preserve Joseph, but to put him in the right position to be able to save the lives, not only of himself, but also of his entire family. Because by that time, 
uh, Jacob had brought the entire family down to Egypt, 70 people. And so from that perspective, when Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He wanted to have many lives saved. Those lives included not only Joseph, but his family members, the 70 people of his family. But it went one step further than that because, because of the position that Joseph was in, the nation of Egypt was preserved. Millions of people could have died in that famine. But God used Joseph. He used this evil that his brothers did in selling him into Egypt. God used that, and he turned it for good in order to save the lives of the Egyptians. And I think Joseph probably had that in mind. And so when he sees that part of the picture, he says, man, you think it's bad, and you intended it for evil, but God turned that, and he redeemed it, and he used it for good so that your lives and the lives of the Egyptians would be saved. But if we step back one step further from that and look at it through the lens of history, you realize not only were, were Jacob and his sons and Joseph's brothers and their families saved, not only were the Egyptians saved as a result of this, the nation of Israel, which in some sense hadn't fully been birthed at that point, was saved. Because you see, the 70 people from Jacob's family that went down to Egypt ended up being enslaved for 400 years, which was obviously a pretty horrific situation. But during that 400 years in Egypt, they incubated and they grew from 70 people to a nation of 2 million people who, when Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt, they're now large enough that they could survive on their own and not either be subsumed by some other country or just be completely wiped out and destroyed the way they would have been if it had just been essentially an extended family of 70 people. So it moves from Joseph to Joseph's family to Egypt to Israel, but then you realize that Israel being preserved, Israel being saved, paves the way for the Messiah, the one who was to come from one perspective to be the savior of Israel, and this we know obviously being Jesus, but not just the savior of the nation of Israel, ultimately the savior of the entire world. Joseph probably had no clue of the ripple effect of what God was doing. He saw one piece of this big picture, and he was able to forgive this horrific sin that his brothers had committed against him. And when we step back and we see the much bigger picture and we see the role that God has us playing in that, we realize that, that we are just part of this huge, incredible picture that God is working, this big story that God is working, it can make it just a little bit easier to forgive other people when they sin against us. Stephen Covey uh, is a, a best-selling author, and, and probably his best-known book is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and my guess is a lot of you have already read that book. If you haven't, it's definitely worth reading. It's an easy read, and uh, it's very insightful. And in that book, he tells a story of how seeing a little bit of a bigger picture in a situation just changed his thinking and changed his attitude in what was a pretty annoying situation. He writes and he says, I remember a, a mini paradigm shift that I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some were reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It's a calm, it's a peaceful scene. And then suddenly this man and his kids enter the subway car and the kids are loud, 
They were rambunctious, and instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me, closed his eyes, and he's apparently oblivious to the situation. The children are yelling back and forth. They're throwing things. They're running around. They're grabbing people's newspapers. It's very disturbing, and the guy's just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. And so as I sat there, I began to stew, and I'm feeling more and more and more irritated. I couldn't believe that this guy is letting his children run wild and doing absolutely nothing about it. And as I look around, I see everybody else seems to be feeling the same way. So finally, with all of the, the patience and gentleness and grace that I could muster, I turn to the man and I say, sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them just a little bit more. And the man lifted his gaze and, and he looked up and he said, yeah, I, I guess you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died an hour ago, and I don't know what to do. And I guess they don't know what to do either. And Covey says that with that glimpse of the bigger picture, his entire attitude toward that man and what he had been viewing as his annoying children changed. He's not annoyed anymore. His heart's going out in sympathy because he sees that something bigger is going on. And when we embrace the big picture, when we embrace the really big picture of what God is doing in history, it's so much easier to forgive. It's so much easier to find peace in the midst of all of the chaos that's going on because then we realize this world is not as it's supposed to be. It's not the way God intended it to be. The hurt and the confusion and the distress and the disappointment and the uncertainty and the pain, all of that that we feel is not the way that God intended it. And when we see that God is redeeming and restoring and rescuing us in the midst of this broken world, when we can look through that lens and embrace the big story, it's a little bit easier to find peace in the midst of all this brokenness. And, and God's big story begins in a garden. It begins in a perfect environment with two human beings who have a perfect relationship between one another and between themselves and their creator. And God has provided everything that they need. He's provided for all of their needs. There's nothing that they could lack, and they have a perfect relationship with him. And yet they decide, we're going to try to act independently of God, and we're going to trust our own wisdom rather than God's. And as a result of this, they end up with this tension between them, and they end up with the guilt and the shame, and they end up hurting one another, and the need for forgiveness, not only between each other, but also between them and God. The need for forgiveness is introduced because they're now hurting one another, and they're now disobeying God. And yet God just doesn't leave it in that way. Thousands of years later, he steps out of eternity into time. The author steps into the pages of the story that he's writing. Jesus comes to earth as a man in order to rescue us from a broken world that's broken because we chose to try to act independently of God. And that's why Jesus came, died on the cross, rose again, that we could have a restored relationship ultimately with God, but
but also with one another, that we could find peace in the midst of the brokenness and the chaos of the world in which we live. But that's not all, because God is going further than that, and he's ultimately going to restore this broken world to the way that he had originally created it. And with that hope in mind, we can find peace in the midst of the chaos of living in this broken world. Julie and the band are going to come back out now and, and sing a song that I think ties a lot of this uh, together. And as they're doing that, I want to read the end of the big story. I want to read just a few verses from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> the Apostle John writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This holy city, this new Jerusalem, is symbolic of us, the church, the followers of Christ, who are looking to him to meet our needs. And what God has done is he has dressed us beautifully in incredible clothing to prepare us for getting to spend eternity with him. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We live in a broken world. And whether we're dressed like royalty, or whether we're dressed in, in servants' rags, whether our circumstances are easy or whether they're hard, this broken world is not where we belong. We were made for a better world than this. This world is really just our temporary home. And knowing that, knowing that we have a loving God who's restoring this broken world, who's preparing a better place for us, knowing the big story and how it ends, and when we know that this is just temporary and we have a home with God forever, that can give us hope and that can help us to find peace in the midst of all of this chaos. And thank God that it is just temporary. Thank him that there's a bigger story, that it doesn't end here with the brokenness, with the pain, with the hurt, with the uncertainty. Thank him that we get to spend eternity with him in a place that is so much better than this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that this is just our temporary home now. I thank you that you are preparing a place for us where there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more mourning, there's no more need for forgiveness because you have made all things new. I thank you for the incredible gift that you gave us in your son, sending him to rescue and redeem this broken world. And I pray for each of us that as we step back and we look at this big story, I pray that we would find hope I pray that we'd find healing. I pray that we'd find forgiveness. And I pray that we'd find peace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning. And if you would like some time to just talk with someone, to pray with somebody, a few of us will be up front. Come on up front. We'd love to pray with you. 
And we hope that you'll come back out tonight as we celebrate communion together on Second Sunday. Have a great week.